Disability After Dark with Andrew Gerza. Shining a bright light on sex and disability. Content warning. The opinions, language, and discussion expressed in Disability After Dark may be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Do you want to keep the conversation lit around sex and disability? Want to spark a conversation about something you heard on the show? Feel like shining some light on an issue that I haven't even thought of? You can do all that and get the inside scoop on what happens in my brain after dark by following me on Twitter at Andrew Gerza. That's A-N-D-R-E-W-G-U-R-Z-A. And be sure to use the hashtag DisabilityAfterDark all over your social media so we can shine light on sex and disability together. Hey there, thanks for clicking on episode 16 of Disability After Dark. My name's Andrew Gerza, and I'm really ready to shine a bright light on sex and disability with you. What I love about doing this work and being a writer and talking about disability the way that I do is when you stumble on someone else or someone else's body of work who also is doing the same kind of work and is sharing similar stories and is able to tell their story through their writing, very similar to how you've done. And I think when it comes to disability, we don't often see a lot of ourselves in writing. And we don't often see people with disabilities sharing their stories so frankly. And so for this episode, I got to interview one of my friends, somebody who I actually just stumbled on their work a couple years ago and I was blown away by what I read. I got to interview Arlo Straddle author Carrie Wade. So let me tell you all about it right now. Her bio from Otto Straddle reads, Her body is weird, and she makes that work for her. According to both her Upworthy bio and her Otto Straddle bio. She has written for Medium, is a staff writer for Otto Straddle, focusing on mostly disability-related stuff, talking about queerness, sexuality, and disability. From my own personal notes for the episode, I wrote, She has such an honesty about her that shows in her writing that is refreshing. I was drawn to her work almost immediately because of the way she discusses and lays out her experience of disability. She is a much-needed voice for young, queer millennials with disabilities. As you'll hear me say to her in the interview we have, we don't have a lot of young, queer, disabled millennials, and Carrie Wade is one of the ones who knocked that title out of the park. She really, really put it out there for young queer disabled women to see themselves and I think what she's doing and the work she's doing she does it so honestly comes by it so honestly that she's not doing it it's almost like she's just it's just happening to her and the the words just flow out of her and the thoughts and ideas around disability just flow from her so I think that she's an up-and-coming and a rising voice for queer women and especially for queer women with disabilities With that, I'm excited to share with you my interview with Carrie Wade, right here on Disability After Dark. Carrie Wade, thank you so much for being on Disability After Dark. I love talking with you. You and I have talked on different iterations of this show, different versions, and it's such a pleasure when you you say yes to coming back to talk to me. It's so fun. Of course I said yes. It's always good to see you. Thank you for having me back. I love having you. You're one of the... As I said in the in the intro, I said you're one of the most important voices for millennials today. Um, oh wow! Because I think you are. Because you know there there are a ton of millennials with disabilities, but there are only a handful of us really who have the cojones to put it out there like we do. So I just think that you know you're not old like me and haven't hit thirty yet. But, I'm almost there. Almost there, but not quite. But when you, because you're still under 30, I consider you a millennial. So I said in the bio that you're, in my view, one of the most important ones out there right now. Um, so it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, I want to jump right in. Sure. So can you, I told them a little bit about you in the bio that I thought you were awesome. Basically, the bio was me gushing about how much I love yourself. But can, <laughs> can you tell, Great. can you... Tell the audience uh, a little bit about yourself. 
Sure. So my name's Carrie. I am a staff writer at autostraddle.com, which is a queer women's website. We do a lot of stuff about politics, a lot of pop culture stuff, a lot of personal essays, a lot of just identity discussion. And even if you are not a queer woman or non-binary person, Autostraddle can be a great resource for you. Um, I'm kind of the disability specialist over there, but they are bringing on more and more disabled writers all the time, which is really great and making it kind of the part of the Autostraddle brand of intersectional feminism and their thing which is awesome to be able to work for a place like that. And so I'm on staff over there. I do a bi-weekly series that comes out every other Monday. It's called Queering Disability. Um, and that's kind of my main thing for the moment. But I'm obviously doing some other stuff too because I'm on staff. And I've written for other places and will write for other places. But for right now, Autostraddle, and hopefully for a very long time, Autostraddle, is my home on the internet and the way that people know me the most. So that is where you found me at first. And I think that's the case for most people who know about my stuff these days. So yeah. And I, what I love, but I stumbled on your stuff just because Facebook shares were happening. I stumbled on you three years ago and I <laughs> remember being like this person has, is, you know, telling it like it is very similar to what I was doing. And I just was like, this person's, I gotta, I have to read their stuff. And so the article that I, that I first read was called, and I love the title so much, Know Me Where It Hurts, Sex, Kink, and Cerebral Palsy. Why I love this piece so much is because in the very first line, the very first thing you ever say is, I have cerebral palsy. We never, ever see this in print as the first thing you ever see. Even for me as a disabled writer, I do this thing where I, like, surprise, I'm disabled, I'll talk about the issue, <laughs> and then I'll talk about it some more, and then right before I get to the meat of what I'm talking about, I'll be like, it's because I'm in a chair, or it's because I can't do this, or da 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 and I do this, like, surprise, guess what, I'm disabled thing, to lull <laughs> them into a sense of, like, weird readership security, and that's right, yeah. totally, whereas, like, you, in this piece, didn't do that, um, where did that, was, what was the inspiration for that? Well, I think part of it is what you said, just wanting to be frank and upfront about that because you don't really see that very much. But also part of it was that the story started as an onstage live storytelling thing that I did. And so the audience was able to see me walking onto the stage and sitting down and then eventually walking off. So obviously seeing me move the way that I do, there were going to be some questions and I figured I would just put a rest to those immediately, you know, and get to the meat of the story from that. And I also knew like, it's an interesting story no matter what, but the point is it's more interesting because disability is involved. Right. And it's basically another character in the story. So I wanted to introduce it right away. And also I think it's important to point out, I don't really do that so much anymore in my pieces with auto straddle. And I think that's because the readership has gotten to know me more. And so they have kind of this larger body of work to go off of and they know what my deal is. But that was the first piece that I had ever written for them and also the first piece that I'd ever had published on the internet. So it felt important for me to establish from the jump, like this is what I'm about, this is what this piece is about, and if you read anything by me, it's gonna be about these things. So now I definitely take more of a, meandering approach but back then it felt very important to sort of step out and establish myself this way yeah I think I think I remember when I first wrote my first piece the first piece I ever wrote was five reasons why sex with a disability is the best sex you'll ever have and right, I, I've read that <laughs> yeah and I felt it was the most really important to have disability in the title and now I play with things like with different words like access and like different different iterations like the boy in the chair I play with it more but I think the first couple of times when you're trying to establish yourself as a disabled writer you really need to you really need to establish that you're comfortable talking about disability um and you certainly in this first piece we all read of yours like I remember seeing it a couple of years ago and it was I remember when I first it was all over my internet feed and I was like who's this is like it was all over and it was every, all over mine too, which was a little weird. <laughs> yeah, it was all over my feed. And so I remember I added you on Twitter 
And I was like, I wonder if I'll ever talk to this person. I, just, I didn't, because, you know, we do our own thing in our own little weird microcosm, and we don't, we do, you're like, oh, I, I admire that person, but I'm not ever going to speak to them. And so what mm-hmm. I love about disability writers, whether we're talking about sex or queerness or whatever, we tend to have a real, like, coven of togetherness, where yeah. it's all of us talking about the same stuff, but where we support each other. And so that's why I love our relationship, because we can, we will, we'll, will WhatsApp each other and be like, so I have an idea for this. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, it's great. And it's, I think it's so it's so exciting when you see a new disabled writer come up and you go, oh, yeah, maybe I can work with them or talk to them or create something with them. And so it's just awesome. Um, but what I love about this piece also is you talk about coming into the experience of, of sex, queerness, and all that fun stuff. Coming mm-hmm. out as queer and disabled is super fun because you never stop coming out in every right. kind of ways. So um, what I like about your piece, though, is you said that it hadn't really hit you, the enmeshed togetherness of sex and disability, until you were lying about with the partner and they asked you a bondage kind of question. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so can you kind of share that with us? Sure. Um So this was the first person that I ever slept with. And I think that's an important point to make because up until I was with this person, I didn't really know anything about sex as an experience. Um, I was more of just a concept. And so once she and I had slept together, I was like, oh, good. Like, that was fun. I did it. (laughs) You know, like I've had sex now. And, you know, (laughs) especially like I think as a disabled adult, right, like you're routinely desexualized against your will all the time and you know your sex drive isn't taken seriously or whatever so the fact that I was even like where my head was at the time is like oh I got someone to have sex with me right which is not the way that I think about it now um but that's because I've I'm at a much better, much more integrated place. place yeah um and back then I was not and so you know, I was sort of still getting my sea legs around sex in general. And she and I had talked about CP, you know, disability stuff, mostly as like funny, haha, you know, you do what you have to do to make it a palatable thing and not scare people away and stuff. I was so concerned that she was going to find out and it was going to be too much and you know whatever I think part of it was that we had met on the internet and I hadn't said up front and so like there was all sorts of stuff she was great about all of it it was just me being weird you know it was all of my internalized ableism coming out to play basically and trying to like make myself essentially as close to an able-bodied partner as I could so like it I fought very very hard to keep sex and my disability separate and I didn't want it to affect anything. I didn't want it to give either of us a lesser experience, but also like because I was in such weird denial about that, like I didn't really understand my body, (laughs) you know? So like it, it was just a lot of, a lot of denial, a lot of discomfort and a lot of secrecy that it wasn't even necessarily she was putting it on me, but I was putting it on myself. Yeah, and I I think as disabled people engaging in sex, we've all been there. It's like you play triple agents with yourself. It's like you mm-hmm. are your disa- your, your able-bodied sexy carry, and then you're disabled non-sexy carry, and then you're the person in between that's like both of them, but you don't, and so you're not sure which one is coming to the sex part, to the, to the sex <laughs> play. You're not sure which one you're going to be kind of with in that moment, and so... I think that when you, I mean, now that I hear the backside of the story, like the, the, now that we're hearing the inner workings of that story, no wonder that it was like an intense experience because yeah. <laughs> all those things were happening all at once. Like, wow. Um, right. And then she introduced kink into the relationship. Which is and, whole... Right. Which is like not a thing that I was prepared for, but it turned out to be great. I mean, and that's what the whole piece is about is that it turned out to be this really affirming physical experience that I wasn't really expecting to have, but it was the first step in letting me see my body in this different way and kind of come to a better place of understanding. But like now even, you know, I mean, back then I was confident enough about my disability and everything to write this piece and put it on the internet. But I look back even that recently and I'm like, wow, a lot has changed. 
Yeah, you know that, that was only three some years ago. Like yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so yeah, it's really interesting to. I have a lot of love for that piece and it really shows you like where I started both literally and figuratively in the stuff that I'm doing right now. Um, but it's definitely a different voice and definitely a different yeah. perspective. When I read that piece, you're, you're, you're telling a story, but it's not as nuanced as you right now. Like you're, what I've seen from you is that your writing is like, it hasn't changed a lot. It's just become deeper. And I like that you're able to like, go into stuff that mm-hmm. is about the topic, but it's like this first piece was just about King CP and sex basically. Right. And so you laid it out and you got a little bit deep, but now you can go into topics and like really dig. And I think yeah. why, I, why I, as a, as a fellow writer like your stuff is cause I'm like, Oh wow. She really got in there. <laughs> and so, um, one of the things I love about that first piece though, is you talk about old pain and new pain. So old mm-hmm. pain being like the pain you're used to as a you know disabled person that you're in. You talk about how your body's kind of always in pain, and yeah. I, I yielded that because it's true. When you have CP like me, that should be that should definitely be a that should be like a podcast or, or a title or something. <laughs> CP like me. Yeah, when you have CP like me, you know you're used to a certain level of pain and a certain level of spasms and a certain level of all those things. So I, I like how you talk about your, you, you were used to that, but you had no idea the pain of like kink and what that could mean and, and mm-hmm. how that might hurt. And so that was really interesting. Um, do you experience any dichotomy between old pain and new pain now? Oh, all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Like, for instance, I bruised my tailbone recently and not even from anything fun. It wasn't even from sex. I just <laughs> fell down. So it was, it's so unfortunate. I wish it was from sex. But um, it was really interesting because it's been really painful. You know, hurting your tailbone actually really hurts because there's not very much you can do about it once it's happened. You just kind of have to wait for it to get better. But it's been really interesting. I explained to my friend after it happened, I was like, oh, I bruised my tailbone. And she was like, oh, no, I'm sorry. Like, that really sucks. And I was like, yeah, but it's really nice to have a source of pain that I can identify. Like, I know why it hurts. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I remember what happened and I'm like, oh, this hurts because I fell down. I remember exactly <laughs> how it happened. I was there for that one. Yeah, exactly. As opposed to all the time when this weird phantom shit is coming out of nowhere and just being like, I might not be able to get out of bed today. Okay, like, that's cool, you know? And yeah, I mean, there are certain aches that you just learn to categorize as like, well, that's just a thing that yeah, I do. Yeah, that's just CP pain. I'm not sure. Yeah, about, like, and, yeah. Right, but then anytime anything new comes along that I like don't know the source of, I freak out a little bit because it's like, ah, is this another one, you know, or is something wrong or, you know, I mean, I think any disabled person has kind of some anxiety around doctors and like going to I have so much anxiety around the medical community and so much anxiety around seeing a doctor. I mean, I I just moved recently to my new place. So I have a a GP that I go see at the walk-in when I need something, I can go talk to her. But I'm always like, mm, what if something really disability related happens? They're going to know what to do. Yeah, right. And I mean, I think what was interesting about the kink thing, and this is still true, um, the idea that pain could feel good was not really a thing that I'd had the chance to ex- experience and experiment with yet. Even as somebody who'd spent most of their life in pain in one way or another, yeah. it had always been bad. It had always been a sign of something amiss. And now it was like, oh, your body is really good at being in pain and that can be a pleasurable thing for you. Yeah. So, yeah, it's important. We as disabled people are taught, like I wrote about this in a piece I wrote recently about accessing anal sex and how much I want to access it and how I'm, I'm afraid. And part one of the things I talk about in the piece is like, basically, if I were to get fucked, I would not be able to get fucked because I'd be afraid of the pain before mm-hmm. the pain even happened. Because as kids with CP we're taught because usually because of our spasms for me anyway because of my level of specificity and my level of tightness when i if anything hurts it hurts a little bit harder than usual because than yeah. the average person because of the muscle spasms so the whole idea of being fucked sounds great <laughs> but also i'm like what if like there's nothing sexy about me like cringing before the person even gets there like what right so um 
yeah, I mean, I feel like the idea that pain can feel good is still something for me as a disabled person. Um, like when I had sex a while back now, about a year ago, I was with a partner who spanked me out of the blue, and I was like, um, okay, I can get with this, <laughs> but understand that you just made my body go into full-fledged spasm because I wasn't ready. Right. So, so there was the whole, like, there's that whole weird moment in your CP brain where you have to, like, no, no, this is not a spastic pain. This, you can you can feel this pain. It's all right. Right. And, I mean, you know, stuff like sensitivity to pain and sensitive sensitivity to different kinds of touch and whatever like that's definitely something that I've had to learn how to negotiate like what feels good and what feels good for a person with CP might not be kind of the standard issue stuff that everybody is taught like even in queer sex right there are these queer normative things that everybody's taught like everyone will love x y and z thing right And like, that's not necessarily true. Like it might be that thing or it might be something that everybody likes, but with like a little bit of a different thing because of like my sensitivity level or, you know, whatever. So yeah, I mean, it has taken me a long time to get my head around, you know, what feels good for me, but it was very interesting to kind of begin my discovery of that with pain as like a central element in the experience. Yeah, I mean, I I can't imagine my first sexual experience being, I mean, there were so many layers to that piece of, like, your first time, you met on the internet, you hadn't... Well, it wasn't the first time that we ever slept together, I should clarify. There was was some vanilla sex quite a bit before that. Um, So it wasn't like, okay, first night, but it definitely was, I mean, it was very early in our relationship, and it was early in my sexual career, obviously. So it was still, it was still new territory for me. Like, when I think about the onion in terms of a, like, graphic that I'm picturing, like, I'm picturing a big blooming onion of so many layers, (laughs) like, peel it off, and... Yeah. Yeah. Um, One of the things that you've said in a few of your pieces that I really enjoy is looking past the disability is bullshit. And I uh-huh. love it because that's that's also the, that's how I see the world. I don't think people should look past the disability because when you do that, you're apologizing for it. And I don't want mm-hmm. to apologize for my disability. I'm ready to deal with how fucked it is. I'm ready to talk about all the parts that I hate about it or like about it. But I think when someone says, oh, I don't see your disability, I'm like, really though? Because I do. Right. <laughs> this is very real. Yeah. Um, so what is the, like, what is your feeling about the looking past? Like how people said to you, Oh, Carrie, I just see you with Carrie. I don't see your disability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that my changing relationship to that idea has been the most indicative of my changing relationship to my disability overall. Um, once I realized that I wasn't okay with that and that wasn't what I wanted, that really, woke me up to the fact that I was starting to think about this differently. Because I think, you know, every disabled person, you kind of start out with that as like the goal, because that's sort of what everybody teaches you is just, you know, you're just like everyone else, as if that's a good thing, you know, as if that's what you should want in your life or whatever. Um, But and so I hung on to that for a long time, including through that first relationship, which I think is part of why we didn't really discuss it that much. I was like, oh, she like, it doesn't matter to her, you know? And I would say that as if it was a positive. And now if I said that about like my current girlfriend, I'd be like, oh, like that's horrible, you know? And like, it's not, you know, part of the reason she and I are together is because that's not her approach, you know? And she is very respectful and, you know, very into me understanding disability as an identity. And I think that's part of, that's like the big change is that once you start seeing disability as an identity, a part of yourself rather than something that happened to you, um, it becomes very troubling to apply that. Yeah. That like see past it thing. It's like, Oh, this fundamental part of you, I'm just going to ignore that. Like, is that cool? You know? So once you start looking at it like that, it's like, Oh, that's not acceptance. That's erasure. Right. And no one wants that. So I think that when people say see past it, you know, they'll see you for who you really are, quote unquote, they're assuming that you want to disassociate. And 
not be seen as a disabled person. They're assuming that you have some sort of shame about it or some sort of grief. Or I mean, it's, of- it's very possible that we have shame about it, but I think it's okay. important. It's important. I, I, the reason why I'm a writer is because I have shame about it. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, and, yeah, I have a ton of grief about it, too. Like, you know, these things can coexist. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and I just think we need to be – I think that instead of erasing it, we need to talk about the shame and where it comes from and what it means and how it feels. And and so to just erase and to look past is – they're missing out on, on so many – I remember being in my, in my late teens, early 20s when I moved away to university, and I'd call my best friend whenever I was hooking up with a boy – I'd say, like, oh, guess what? Guess what? And she'd be like, what? And I'd be like, it's because he, my disability doesn't matter. Isn't that great? And we oh. have a five-minute conversation about how great it was. Mm-hmm. And now if a boy said to me, your disability doesn't matter, I'd be like, but, you know, you realize that it does, right? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what has been interesting in, like, the period of dating prior to my current relationship, but after I had sort of started to build up this voice as a disabled person, like, I think that I was like, oh, anybody that I'm with in the future is going to be exposed to this. You know, they're going to know that I'm like a disabled person, like publicly, you know, but I had a very hard time kind of learning how to reconcile that. And there yeah. was sort of this part of me that was still trying to hang on to the see past it thing. And so I was like, are they going to be okay? Is it going to be too much? Is it going to like put them off? Should I like downplay the fact that I'm a writer and just talk about my day job all the time? And like, they just won't know about this other stuff because it'll be too much for them. And you know, whatever. Obviously, you'll note that None of this is about my actual feelings. It's just accommodating this like phantom able-bodied yeah. person who like, <laughs> you know, it's it's so bizarre. Um, but yeah, I think the the C pasta thing is very very hard to get rid of, but it's like deep seated in everybody, no matter where they are. Yeah, and people you know? say, like people say it to us all the time. People say it to us. Oh yeah. In the weirdest spaces where you're like, I really wish you wouldn't. Like, yeah, it would have been awesome if you just stopped talking, you know, don't say (laughs) it. It's all right. Um, Right. So basically the bottom line, I I put this in, in two slides in my notes. The end of my next slide is looking past again, brilliant. Don't do it. So basically anybody who's anybody who has come up to either of us or any disabled person said, I don't (laughs) see your disability guys. Please never say it again. Please, please strike that from your record, please. Right. I mean, I think just think about what you're really trying to say, which is like, I see you as a whole person. That's great. Yeah. But like, you know, cerebral palsy is part of that. Part so, of my wholeness is my crippledness, yeah. guys. The, yeah. Um, right. So I want to, one of the other pieces that I love that you wrote, and I just love your titles, which just so like, boom, and that's why I like. <laughs> so, um, you wrote, Dear Able Buddy Partner, this piece, the, the the way you open this piece about taking your shoes off and you would take them off before you get in the room so that you wouldn't have to, so that your partner wouldn't have to see you struggling, take them off. Mm-hmm. Um, that was such, like, I used to have AFOs. I still, mm-hmm. I still should have AFOs. I'm just lazy and don't wear them. <laughs> um, so, but, yeah, that whole of, like, I don't want to have to hide from you and I don't want, I don't necessarily need your help. And you don't have to feel like you have to give it to me. And if I want it, I'll ask for it. Like, that was really powerful. Can you elaborate on that piece a bit? Yeah, I mean, it's one of my favorites. Um, I I have a very hard time with everything that I write. <laughs> you know, there can be a little bit of a tempestuous writing process and a lot of the time stuff will come out and I'll be like yeah it's okay or like you know that's really good but it's not one of my favorites but Dear Able Buddy Partner is one of my favorites for sure and I think that um part of it is the form and the fact that it is written as an open letter I had never done the open letter form before and so I had a lot of fun working with that but also you know, that piece went through more drafts than any piece that I've written to this day. Um, yeah. it, it took so long for me to get to the point. And it was like, there was so much in like the early drafts 
there was a lot of anger, which I understand. And, you know, I think there's still a little bit of anger kind of yeah, simmering, there's you know. A, there's some angstiness in there. You, you can feel it's it's biting when you read the piece a little bit. Yeah, but it's not the the crux of it. And so for those early drafts, it was very like, my friend described an early draft of it to me. She's like, you know what this says to me is, fuck you, let's date, <laughs> you know? And I was like, yeah, that's not exactly what I'm trying to get at. And so it was very interesting to have to kind of peel back those layers, like you were saying, of myself to get to, you know, I had to write across the top, like write to the girl you love, right? Like you're not writing to an able-bodied person in the abstract that you are angry at. You are writing to an able-bodied person in the abstract that you are in love with and that you have compassion for. And so it took me a lot to like get vulnerable enough to write the types of things that I really wanted to say to that person. Um, and anger. I've seen, I, I've seen your drafts. We've, we've talked on the air or off the air and you've shown me on in Skype conversations, your draft notes. Like yeah. you're like I wrote a piece last night and I wrote it in one draft and I submitted it because I was like this is great I, this is fine, but I was like after looking at your draft folder I was like she's wow she's <laughs> like that's so many drafts, so many drafts so many yeah I mean it's I'm a pretty intense drafter but that one in particular it took a lot just because of how raw I had to be. Um, and anger is involved in that, but I did want to make sure that there was a lot of compassion and a lot of honesty and a lot of frankness. Um, and it just took a lot of stripping down to get there. So I have a lot of, you know, I think very fondly of that piece because of the process that I had to go through. And I think that arriving at the place that I arrived because of that piece has made me a better writer since then. So I think that's great. And I think, you know, writing to an able-bodied person and telling them, telling them your truth and telling them what you want out of this and telling them how your disability is going to be a part of it and telling them all these things. Able-bodied partners, I don't think they hear it enough. And I don't think disabled... Mm-hmm. disabled I, now, I've never been in a relationship past, thanks to the blowjob, I'll see you later. But... Um, <laughs> An but, important type of bond. Right. In and of Isn't itself. it? Yes. But I've never, been, I've never gotten a chance to kind of explore actual relationship you shit with somebody so i think a lot of people don't hear a lot about our our uh what we want and i don't think disabled people say it enough because we're scared in your piece you just kind of lay it out and i think every able-bodied person that we encounter or date needs to get a letter like that from each of us <laughs> yeah 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 i mean i think honestly like i've thought about in the future someday doing a larger project called Dear Able-Bodied Partner, you know, where it's not just me talking, like, because everybody is going to have such different things to say um, in a mixed ability relationship. You know, it's going to depend on what their disability is, what their relationship to that is, and, you know, whatever. It's definitely not like a one-size-fits-all thing. Um, I would be very interested to hear other people's takes on that same concept. But, yeah, I mean, I think there is a lot of weird kind of expectation and stigma around a mixed ability relationship. So I really wanted to, it's like the type of relationship that people want us to have or expect us to have, but they also don't really offer us any avenues to like discuss what that would mean. So I wanted to kind of open that up and be like, okay, you know, this is a real thing and this is how I would negotiate it. And I think they need to be put on notice. They need to be. They need to realize that we have That's all these. You. Yeah, they need to realize that we have all these feelings, and we often don't say it. And so to see somebody so clearly and frankly and honestly put it down on paper for everyone to read was like, okay, this is great. <laughs> um, what I have in the notes here is the assumptions that we have of PWD, and I the the acronym that I used for that was partnering while disabled. Um, <laughs> nice. Because I think we have so many assumptions on both sides. The the able-bodied person may think that um, it's a you know being with an with sorry the disabled person may think that being with the able-bodied person is like a fantasy and a fairy tale because mm-hmm. they've 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 snagged an able-bodied person. Whereas right. the able-bodied person may think that it's super hard and they have to help, they have to be to help her all the time. And so there's all these expectations that no one talks about and your letter made it clear that these conversations need to 
be happening more. Well, thank you. Yeah, that was the idea. I mean, I think part of it was just learning me personally to articulate things in a vulnerable way um, and learning to say what I wanted. Um, but also, yeah, to kind of start that conversation that doesn't get had and you know it's happening inside our heads all the time right as like crippled people you know we're just like I really wish I could say x y and z to you so you know I'm just glad that it did that yeah I agree with you it's happening in our head all of the time Mm -hmm. but no one is voicing it and so I'm glad that your piece was like here it is here's what we're really thinking (laughs) thanks Uh, one of the other notes that I put here that I that I really like um was the pressures that both parties place on themselves in these situations. And I've talked about storyboarding my sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that phrase a lot. I've talked about that. Do you think that we can storyboard a, and I've termed it here, a crypt relationship? <laughs> um, like in terms of setting up expectations and then having them... Yeah, like come to pass. Sit down with a pre with your partner, you know, before all, things all get all serious. Like, okay, here's my disability. Here's my reality. Here's what I want, sort of, and here's what you want, sort of, and here's how my disability will interplay with all of that. Like, do you think that's worth it, or should you just kind of go in for the ride and see what happens? Well, it depends on I think if you're just hooking up um, and you're more interested in that sort of relationship, I don't think you necessarily have to storyboard all the way through, but I think that if you are like a serious relationship type person, I, I personally wouldn't be able to have a relationship like that without that conversation. Um, I think that I did before, right? Like kind of like what we were talking about earlier. And that's one of the reasons why it didn't work out. Um, is that we never really had that talk. And I mean, it doesn't need to be like a come to Jesus, like we're having a very serious talk right now thing. But like, yeah, obviously you need to be able to be frank and honest and vulnerable with the person you're with about every part that you want to share with them. And I think that disability for me is like first and foremost um, among those things. And yeah, I can't really see for me personally ever having like a long-term lasting thing where that was not a huge part of it. Totally. I think those conversations are so key. But to get yeah. to that place where you can like talk about your disability as part of the relationship is hard. Um, yeah. And I mean, it doesn't have to be just one talk, you know, like they just get to know you along the way and whatever. But I think like the longer you keep your disability out of it, the scarier it becomes to introduce it. <laughs> like your disability becomes this Cloverfield, yeah, mo- like monster. Exactly. So I think it's important to start those conversations. And again, like they don't all have to be serious and scary, but I, they do have to be real. Um, and I think that that's really important. As we were talking, I, I want to move on to the next thing that I that I loved about your stuff, and this one wasn't so much an article, it was more or less a flowchart. This is a piece that I'm pulling up the flowchart right now so I can look at the flowchart with you while we're talking. You wrote a piece called So You Want to Fuck an Able-Bodied Person. (laughs) And I just, I love it because it's so, it's so like Seinfeldian, but not, it's just so, it's just really so, so, so there you are, you want to fuck, and it's just, you're speaking to my people and I liked it so much. Um, Can you... I love the flowchart. I'm pulling it up right now. Can you kind of talk about that a bit? Sure. Um, I actually got that idea based on a flowchart that I had done a couple of years before that, um, where I talked about how I get upstairs. Like when I see a staircase, the thought process that goes through my head is so complicated to get up the stairs. And I was like, it'd be really funny to do this as some sort of graph, have like a visual representation of it. So I did this little chart about the stairs. I put it on Facebook. All my friends thought it was funny. And it's been picked up by a few other places online. I'm sure people could find it if they Googled diligently. Um, But after a while, um, I was like, you know, another very complicated situation that disabled folks often find ourselves in is sex, right? And so I was like, I could make something like that about sex. And then I had pitched that idea to Autostraddle and they thought it was really funny, just like a disabled sex flowchart and all the things that can go awry in your like quest to have sex, um, which is a million things. 
And I narrowed it down to just sex with able-bodied people because I needed some sort of parameter to narrow it down. You know, otherwise you have like 50 flowcharts in, in one and it's just two bananas. Yeah. And so I went with the able-bodied people one because that's what most of the readership of Autostraddle is. That's the type of sexual dynamic that most people are most intrigued by and most interested in. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's the internet. People love hearing disabled people talk about sex, especially if it's sex with able-bodied people, because it's sort of still to this day perceived as something that shouldn't really be happening. It's and so, yeah, 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 exactly. So I, I just narrowed it down. That was mostly for efficiency's sake. But then I just like went through all of the like questions that I have to ask myself when I like see someone that I'm interested in and like various misadventures that have happened along the way, you know, in trying to get that to happen. A lot of it is based on stuff that's happened to me in real life. A lot of it is based on stuff that's happened to my friends. Um, and yeah, I just, you know, I put together this little like hero's journey through this thing. Like it looks like a trip to Mordor. (laughs) Yeah. It's very complicated, but I love that. I immediately thought when I was making notes for this, I, I, I messaged you and I was like, can we get that on like some sort of shirt? Can you get a shirt? Like it <laughs> needs to be a shirt. And I think why why it's really important, the chart, is because typically you'd see uh, click articles like that that would say, so you want to sleep with a disabled person. Mm-hmm. And you don't see it the other way around. And so that's why it was, right. like, it was really cool. Um, we can't go over the whole flow chart because there's so many cool parts to it, but it, <laughs> people should Google that, look it up. Read it, you'll laugh your head off. It's a good time. It's a yeah. good time for sure. Um, Thank you. And, and the whole turning it on its head thing was very intentional. Like the way that that article is written is like, look, some able-bodied people are really hot and you're going to want to sleep with them. You know, it's like a very inverse thing of what yeah. we get, which is like only the hottest disabled people are sexually eligible in any way. Um, and so I did... I kind of wanted to poke fun at that whole idea of like most disabled people are not going to be fuckable by like turning it around and being like able-bodied people. How does it feel? You yeah, know, when yeah. this happens to you and I mean being autostraddle, like the readership there received it very well because they have a good sense of humor about these sorts of things. But yeah, that was very intentional. So thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> I just, I think your titles are just so like, like poignant. And so and this one was just funny. It was just a laugh. Um, Thank you. We talked about vulnerability earlier, and that's another piece you wrote, which I made a whole bunch of notes about when when I reread it for interviewing you. You wrote Mm -hmm. a piece called On Vulnerability as a Disabled Person, uh, and you talk about how different bodies are rewarded for the ways disability makes you invulnerable and not disabled enough. Can you kind of elaborate on that for us? Oh, God. I mean, where to begin? This is like the central battle of my life, (laughs) you know? First. Before you go, before you start, I just want to tell you that everybody who is everybody in the disability community retweeted and reposted and re the people who we both probably look up to were like, "This piece is great!" And yeah. I, was like, I was so proud of you that day. I was like, "Yeah!" Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was a wild time. The, this one definitely got around, which is great. I mean, it's like it's another one of those that is among the most honest things that I've ever written. Um, yeah, I mean, what sort of questions do you have about it? Well, I just like that you talk about how different bodies are rewarded for the ways disability makes you invulnerable and not disabled enough. Do you? How do you feel? Do you, I mean, do you have days where you feel not disabled enough to be? I mean, yeah, I think that you know the times that I feel um, like not when I feel that sort of anxiety, I think it's it's a lot of um, disability colliding with my other identities. So like as like a white cisgender person, there's only going to be so much of the disability intersectional experience that I understand. Yeah. Right. And so like, there's that of like, you know, just because I'm disabled doesn't mean I can speak for all disabled folks, especially because I'm white and I'm cisgender and I have class privilege and I have educational privilege. And so and in some lot. small way, you have some, some able privilege, too. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's part of what this piece was, was, like, the whole concept of, like, 
able-bodied people being very accepting of me because I can walk and because I can speak clearly and like in a way that they are comfortable interacting with me. You say in the piece that, you know, you're, you're the good kind of disabled and you're not the bad kind of disabled. And I like that a lot because, and when I read that again, my first thought was like, I am the bad kind of disabled and I want to embrace that and not to like shame myself, but I kind of like took that as a source of pride. Yeah. All right, I'll be the bad disabled. I'm all right with that. I'll just like I, I I like that I could put myself in that category, and like really go into the whole disability thing and be the one that people are scared of. And mm-hmm. what I liked about it was that I could play on the, oh yeah, you're you're afraid of me. Great. Okay. Good. Be afraid. It's all right. I'm all right with it. Like there's there was something when I read that dichotomy you posed that was really cool because I immediately saw how you you because of your abilities would be would be in the good category and mm-hmm. because of my lack of ability would be in the bad category and i just was like oh i i i enjoy playing with the idea that disability is wrong and disability is not okay and being in a wheelchair makes you less than or weak so i like playing with that like you've seen the podcast art for this it's me as a, right. uni- as a unicorn so i mean i like playing with all the taboo stuff um yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the a lot of what that piece is about um, is it's sort of, you know, talking about internalized ableism, right, and how that can kind of come to pass as somebody who is the good kind. Like, it's so tempting and so easy to just distance yourself from the disability community at large um, and kind of be welcomed into the warm embrace of the able-bodied world and just be like, I'm not like those people, right? Like, I yeah. might be like this, but I'm not like that. And, you know, create this distance and nobody is going to stop you is the thing. Like if that's what you decide to do, nobody's going to say, no, actually, that's a really bad idea. Everybody's going to be like, great. Like we're fine. You know, like good for you. You've overcome and you, yeah, exactly. You've achieved and you've like conquered your hardships and whatever. Yeah. That remains our go-to narrative about these things. Right. And like, that was sort of what the piece is about. And like, I, kind of bought into that especially as a kid I mean what can you do right like you're in high school it's like a rough we all do it as a kid yeah the desire to pass is not disabled it's like it's like it's it's the disability achievement unlocked as if you can like make it so that you're not disabled yeah totally but I think that in the time since then you know the one of the chief things that's happened to change that feeling and to kind of start to work through my internalized ableism and the way that it collides with white privilege and the way it collides with class privilege and all my different privileges is to embrace vulnerability and the fact that I am a vulnerable person, you know, and that I'm not kind of this invulnerable, impenetrable, like superhero, you know, solitude. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, well, no, actually, like I've got some shit, you know, I'm working on it, whatever. Like, you know, that's part of what, has been wonderful about becoming kind of part of the disability community on the internet is being able to discuss those things openly with people. Um, but yeah, it takes a lot to kind of bring that armor down because you're taught from the start that again, like being just like everyone else is like the thing that's going to get you far in life and to sort of have to unlearn that, um, whether it's in like your professional life or in your relationships or whatever, and like actively teach yourself not to take that path is yeah. very, very, very hard. Um, so that was kind of the point with that piece. That one was hard because it definitely went through what I call a dear diary phase where it was just like very emotional and very angsty. And I was like, I got to like rein this in just a little. Yeah, I got to make it <laughs> public know? for the world. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what I like about the piece and what, I, what, was, what drew me to that piece and when I read it again at the end, the last thing I wrote in my notes here is, vulnerability is my currency and I really think that that's how I navigate the world is I love being vulnerable I love being the one that that feels too much I love being the one that says how they feel I love being the one that goes through all the stuff that no like as much as it annoys me some days I'm also so thankful for it because I can bring an experience to a partner a lover a boyfriend uh friendships that someone else couldn't bring and that's because I'm allowing myself to feel and I think what you kind of touched on that piece is that we have to feel the disability experience 
mm-hmm. within ourselves and as hard as that can be and that's hard we just talked about it it's exa- it's really hard to go the kind of trivial path and not go the like oh it's okay everything will be fine don't think about it path right um, totally but you gain a sense of yourself that no one else can take from you ever yep it's true um and i think i just think the way you weave it in and out of that piece like that i like i said that piece went viral fast wow like everybody yeah. it was everywhere like what i like about your pieces and this speaking of pieces that have gone viral hmm. i now want to move into the latest one you wrote because that it made me laugh <laughs> um, I was done my I was done my notes. We were gonna record a while back, and I was finished my notes. And then you you WhatsApp me with this idea, with this thing, with this piece that was coming out on Halloween, and I <laughs> I was like, "That's great!" And the idea you had was to make a review of the movie Me Before You, which I which I call Me Before You. And you wanted to review it as a horror film. And I just thought that that was so original. <laughs> it wasn't done from a place of, like, direct anger. A lot of the reviews that I saw from people with disabilities who, who reviewed that film, and rightfully so, they were fucking pissed off. Oh, and sure. you could see it in the way they wrote. And I, I respect all that, and I think they were important. But the, the difference between that and your piece was you wrote it as if it was a, a, a straight review and that that the contagion that he that he was dealing with was ableism. Where did this come from? <laughs> um, well, thank you. I I think that was a fun idea. Um, it it came to me because I was like, I should do something about me before you. Like, I haven't I haven't written anything about it because back when it came out, you know, people, like you said, people were just all over it. And I was like, great. Like, all the stuff that I would have said is being said already. Just people's anger and whatever. And I originally, I had a couple of other ideas about it um, that were floating around in my head. But I knew... I looked at the Autostraddle editorial calendar and I was like, oh, my next piece is supposed to come out on Halloween. Like I should have some sort of horror themed thing. And so I had thought a lot about like disability as, you know, monsterism in like films. And, you know, I was like, should I watch Freaks and write about that? You know, I was like thinking about it or like, you know, do something about American Horror Story or, you know, I had like a few different ideas. And then I was like, oh, I know what I'm going to do, right? Because it was, I mean, Me Before You, it's, I had never watched it. I had only seen the trailer, which is atrocious enough on its own. (laughs) But I was like, if I'm going to watch this, I need to do it with an angle. Like I need to, yeah, I need to have a point already. And once I realized, I was like, oh, like, you know, because I was thinking about like the representation of disabled people as monsters in horror films. And I was like, this is a really good idea for satire, because if you turn not the disability into like the monster contagion, but ableism into the monster. Yeah. And I had originally thought of it, of reviewing it as like a, a slasher film, like a, you know, like a killer movie with like ableism following them around and whatever. And I had like thrown that idea around in my head for a little bit. And I was thinking about, I talked to one of my friends who's like a specialist in horror movies um, and she's getting her PhD and a lot of her writing has to do with music and horror films and stuff. Yeah. And I was talking to her about it and reading some articles that she had sent me. And I came across the genre of bio horror with like disease outbreaks. And I was like, Oh, that's it. That's it. Like, well, this like a disease film which is like even funnier because I, I guess it's like tooting my horn that's so funny but like you know it it is funnier because a lot of people see disabilities as diseases and yeah. so I think it's it was fun to kind of like put my thumb in the eye of that whole concept and be like actually like we're not the problem right um it's and yeah this it, poor guy that was stricken with ableism like it was just right. so funny Thank you. Yeah, um, it was fun. It was fun to write it. And I mean, it was nice. I, I was right. It was nice to watch it with something in mind so that I could just ignore the irrelevant parts. And I'm like, I don't really have to pay that hard of attention to every single moment of this movie. Yeah. Uh, you can like, so. 
like it would be really cool if somebody took the trailer and redid it like those screen movies from the nineties. Like, <laughs> yes. Like somebody out there with editing skills, please do that. Exactly. Any uh, YouTube enthusiasts out there who have a free afternoon, I would love to see that. Yeah, like it'd be so funny. Um, that's kind of. I mean, I've hit the end of my slides. Um, did you have anything you wanted to ask me to talk about? No, I mean, I'm. I'm just always really happy to have the opportunity to come on and talk with you. So thank you for all of the really kind things that you've said about my writing, and I hope that. You know, I hope I can continue to create stuff that speaks to you. And I hope that being here can help people who haven't found my stuff yet. Go ahead and find it so that you know what we were talking about this whole time. Yeah, because it's because I, I can't us talking about it doesn't do it justice. You have to sit like Carrie's writing is the writing where you have to sit there and like really you don't have, you don't have to like rack your brain. But you have to be into the moment and think about it and really get into the piece because they go deep. They make you think about stuff. Um, I had general questions, but basically, uh, so I'll ask one. So what has your experience been as a queer woman with CP? Has it, I mean, because as a queer man with CP, my community hasn't necessarily been the most welcoming. How Mm -hmm. has that been for you in, in especially like a queer Mecca like Los Angeles? Is it, do you feel welcomed by your community or is it still something you struggle with? I mean, I think that queer Mecca is a little strong. Um, I mean, it is like a major city and obviously it's one of the major cities in the world. And so there are going to be lots of queer people here, but LA is very spread out. So it can be very difficult for queer people and queer women in particular, because we don't really have as much of a bar scene and stuff like that um, to find each other. So it can feel very isolating and it has in the past not even just because of disability stuff. Um, but just like from the baseline is very hard. That's like, you have to get in your car and you have to like drive to some other part of town and the traffic is insane and you have to make sure not to drink too much cause you have to drive home. And you yeah. know, just the logistics of it are, it's like asking a lot <laughs> just to begin with. But, um, in terms of disability stuff, I have, found my community very accepting but that is because my community is based largely around my friends and the website that I work for so I haven't really gone out to do very many like super sceney things and when I have done that I've definitely felt like I don't really belong here but that's as much a personality thing as a disability thing yeah I think for me too like I I am now in like a central city too and I could mm-hmm. even go to the scene and do that stuff but I'm such a homebody I'm like can we just watch mm-hmm. Netflix and do nothing like that's all I want to do exactly um so it was such a pleasure yeah. I'm such a homebody like I could do the scene I could do all that stuff but I, I'm like Netflix and chill like I don't want to mm-hmm. do we really have to go anywhere can we just watch Mary Tyler Moore and then go to sleep <laughs> like that's all I want to do yeah my my girlfriend and I are very into watching Perry Mason right now <laughs> so I I get it <laughs> and there's something about just like doing nothing that is really nice mm-hmm. really yeah nice. yeah and I think yeah for me, that is absolutely the case. So that's made going out and doing crazy scene stuff very unappealing and very difficult. But, and I did feel kind of alienated and alone for a long time when I thought that that was my only option. Yeah. Um, but once I found a group of friends who are queer and I was able to build out from there and like go think, go to things with them and go to events. And so like, we'd meet new people there and then we'd like bring them into the friend circle. And, you know, now I'm like dating someone who started out as a friend in that in circle. circle. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it can happen. That wasn't the point though. You know, it wasn't like, I wasn't expecting that to happen. It was just a very welcome surprise. And, but I felt very secure and taken care of by this friend group. And so I think that is like, if you're going to approach it, in any way and you're not like a scene stir and you're looking for an alternative, I would highly suggest building up a friend group um, first. And my friend who was kind of the ringleader of the whole operation, genius maneuver, she and another friend of hers um, 
went on to OkCupid and they built profiles for themselves and then they compared their matches and they kind of compiled a list of like a bunch of us that they thought were cool. And they sent us all a message and they were like, hey, let's go to a bar. Like we're messaging a bunch of people. We're just trying to get like a bunch of women together because we always complain about how we can't find each other. And like, let's just go find each other and hang out. And like, this doesn't have to be a meat market. It's like not a mixer. It's not a high pressure thing. We're just trying to, yeah, we're just trying to build a group of friends. And that's exactly what happened. And I still see those people all the time and I love them a lot. And so, you know, they've been very welcoming to me as like a queer person to have other queer people around is very helpful. Um, and as I've kind of grown into this disability identity um, and more and more publicly, those friends have been kind of my chief supports. So when I was trying to just do it alone, when I was trying to go it alone and navigate the scene and figure out where I was supposed to be and stuff um, by myself, it did not work. Um, It was very alienating and weird. and I just like stayed at home a lot, not because I wanted to, but because I felt like I didn't have any other option and yeah. I wouldn't meet yeah. anyone anyway. There's a safety you know. when you're at home and you're going to have to worry about all the crap. I can just be in my exactly. space. Yeah. Right. But I think once I had that friend group, so once I had support and then I was able to kind of grow as a person because of them, that really changed everything. So yes, now, but and now, you know, because of Autostraddle, I have a completely new community of people, both with my colleagues and with the readers. And it's wonderful. And it's just like this brand new world. And, you know, but I wouldn't have gotten there without my friends. The core. Who, yeah. Yeah. The core group. So, yeah, now, yes. But it did take some very conscious effort and some social engineering on the part of my friend. So it like definitely did not come together organically. You know, it wasn't just like sitting around waiting for the right people to fall into your lap. It was like a very conscious decision. Um, but I'm really happy that she did it. And I'm really proud of my friends. And, you know, I'm proud to be part of that group. And I'm proud to be part of Autostraddle and all of the queer spaces that I'm in um, are now. I feel very welcome and I feel like I belong because I'm part of something as opposed to, you know, trying to float around individually and get my footing by myself. Yeah, it's it's tough, and that's kind of how I'm doing it. I'm doing the individual floaty thing, and I'm doing it, and my work is, you know, because I'm running a podcast, and I'm, right. I'm, yeah, I'm ending up naked on the internet, and people kind of <laughs> people kind of know who I am a little bit. I'm able that was to, it, yeah. Yeah, so, but it is tough, and I think um, it sounds like queer, your, your queer female group is really really wants to focus on the friend thing and I think that's nice because typically for me as a queer man they'll focus on the friend thing after we've we've decided whether or not we're fuckable which is I mean mm-hmm. and I just I, I, I kind of do long for that friendship thing first but again I think queer men are socialized a little bit differently in that we're sure. socialized through sex first friendship maybe later yeah I mean you know there are some stereotypes about queer women that are very true. Like everybody sleeps with everybody and you know, there's still that, but it's like a different, I think it's because of, you know, the, the expectations of like cis male masculinity are so specific and especially cis male gay masculinity. There's yeah. like some it's very, so, it's so yeah. fragile. It's just cis queer male masculinity. It's like the most fragile yeah. thing ever. Exactly. Um, so, so. I, Totally... No, we still we still make messes. Don't don't yeah. get me wrong, but it's just a different kind. A whole different mess entirely. Um, on that awesome note, I want to thank you so much for your time today, Carrie. Talking to you is my favorite thing ever. Um, <laughs> of course, thank you. You're just so much fun to talk to. Um, can you let the audience know where to get a hold of you? Obviously, I'm gonna point them to your links, but if they sure. want to have a Twitter chat with you. Absolutely. So my Twitter handle is Wade Theory. So like my last name and then the word theory, like music theory or string theory or whatever. Um, And if you go on to autostraddle.com and search for Carrie in the offer field, I will come up. You can also click on the disability tag and a lot of my stuff will come up there. Um, Those are kind of the main places to find my writing and 
you know, I've, I have some stuff on medium, some of my stuff's on Upworthy. There are a few other places where you can find me, but Twitter and Autostraddle are definitely the best bets. Awesome. The last question that I've been asking the guests, uh, is how the, the slogan for the show is, I want to shine a bright light on sex and disability. How is it that Carrie Wade wants to shine a bright light on sex, disability, femininity, queerness, all your stuff? How, how, how are you doing that? Or how do you want to do that? Um, by being really hot and writing really well. <laughs> <laughs> That's an awesome answer. I like that. How about that? Can we go with that? That totally works. Um, it was so fun to chat with you. Uh, and I'm so excited for the listeners to hear this. Um, Thank you. Thanks so much, Carrie. It was great. It was always good to see you. Thank you so much. So much fun. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. Bye. That interview was just jam-packed with cripple goodness. And I'm so, so glad that Carrie was willing to talk to us about her writing process and what each of the pieces that we talked about, which you should all go and read following this interview. I'm so glad that she was able to share with us what they meant for her and what the process was like writing them and how important they were for her. And hearing that from another disabled writer makes me proud to do what I do. And I hope that when listening with her, it gave you a different perspective on disability and writing and the things we put on paper and why we as disabled people need to have more voices and we need to have more stories. And I was happy to share just a little bit of Carrie's story with you today. Carrie, if you're listening, thank you so much for your vulnerability, for your time and for your honesty and for the words you put on the page for all the rest of us to read. You're a gem. Just before we close today, I want to do a shameless plug. I want to let you know about my Patreon page for the podcast. I produce Disability After Dark, the podcast to shine a bright light on sex and disability, completely independently. I do so here in my home studio in Toronto with one earbud mic and my laptop and some Audacity software that I use. That's about it. That's literally the extent of my production value. Um, I edit everything myself, which is not very a lot of editing, but I do edit it a little bit. I work really hard on it, producing episodes, getting guests, finding guests, coming up with new topics. I spend hours doing episodes and putting them together so they sound really nice, and I really am learning hard on how to make it sound even better. And I want to work on getting some new equipment, and I want to work on making the podcast monetized so that I can continue the conversation around sex and disability. This is not for me to get rich. This is not for me asking for money to become a star. This is finding ways to continue this conversation. So if you like the work that I do and if you like what you hear on this podcast, please head over to my website, andrewgerza.com. Head over to the Disability After Dark page and underneath every podcast, you can see the Join Me on Patreon button. Please click that button if you're able to donate. Whatever money you can spend a month to help make this podcast grow would be greatly appreciated from five bucks, 10 bucks, two bucks, whatever you can do would really help me out and make the conversation around sex and disability shine even brighter. Thanks for listening to this episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast to shine a bright light on sex and disability. Copyright notice. The Disability After Dark podcast, including title, graphic, Content, interview recordings, and title music produced and recorded by Chris Ujiuchi are property of Andrew Gerza. This podcast cannot be reproduced without permission from the owner. Disability After Dark with Andrew Gerza. Shining a bright light on sex and disability.